the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, August 6th, 1991. I'm Sally Helm. This story is about an innovation, a huge one. But it starts with the most mundane historical artifact imaginable, a digital memo. It looks sort of like a spam email you might get from a listserv you forgot you subscribed to. Producer Julia Press. Hi, Sally. Hello, Julia. So, yes, this memo. It's not an email, more like a post on a forum. It goes out to a few hundred computer programmers and tech fans under the subject line, re qualifiers on hypertext links dot dot dot. If you saw that in the list of posts, you could be forgiven for skipping over it. You certainly could. But if you did, you would be missing something that will change the entire world. The memo is from an engineer named Tim Berners-Lee. Tim Berners-Lee, remember that name. He's writing to a community of fellow coders and engineers about a little project he's been working on. He calls it the World Wide Web, WWW project. And he includes an address where you can find out more an address for the world's first website. Listeners, you may know that Tim's little WWW project takes off. This memo is the web's big bang. It arguably kicks off the creation of the entire online universe that we know today. To be clear, the internet does exist in 1991, but barely. The vast majority of people know nothing about it. Yet back then, the internet without the web is just a network for a select few wonks. A way to connect computers with copper wires, radio waves. It's used mostly by coders and researchers. The internet back then is not the thing we know today. It is not a thing that connects basically all of humanity and houses basically all of the information we know and shows off our most evil and our most laudable instincts as human beings. But the World Wide Web is about to change that completely. You know, it's like the internet would be the electricity grid. The web are the things you plug into. Hmm. Or the internet is the physical TV. The web are the programs you watch. Keep them coming. And Tim Berners-Lee actually used the compare. you know, the, the internet is like the physical brain. The web is like the mind. Whew. That one's, that's a little deep. <laughs> <laughs> Today... If you didn't get that either, stick with us as we explore the deep, mind-bending invention that is the World Wide Web. How did a group of scientists and coders even conceive of something as big and ambitious and strange as the web? And how did they bring it not just to coders and other specialists, but to the rest of us, for better or for worse? up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Julia Press. Hello. 
History This Week producer. You are here to help me tell this story about the invention of the World Wide Web because you actually talked to many of the people involved. I did. And one of the first things that I had to do was get my head around what the tech world even looked like at this point. Yes, fair enough. I myself was four days old when Tim Berners-Lee sent this memo in 1991. (laughs) So I don't know. I don't have like a strong memory of what computers were like at that point in time. You weren't paying enough attention, clearly. I know, I know. (laughs) I don't either. Um, So let's go back to 1989. Two years before Tim Berners-Lee sends what will become this world-famous message. This is a world of paper, of corded landline telephones. We heard about it by fax when the Berlin Wall falls. Jean-Francois Graff studied telecommunications in the 80s. And that gave him access to this wild new technology called the internet. At the time, There is no notion of an internet for most people in the world. It's a science fiction stuff. But for the people who did have access to it was was a bonanza. It was fantastic. It is fantastic and kind of science fiction-y. But the basics are simple. The internet uses telephone lines and radio waves to link computers, connect computers at one institution to those at another. That's, in fact, what the meaning of internet is. It's an interconnection of networks. Internet. I know, I'd never broken that word apart before, even though I've said it a million times. And at this moment in 1989, very few people even know what the internet is. Because as Groff is saying, ordinary people are not using it. A lot of people do have personal computers, PCs, but ordinary people don't really have the resources to set up the internet. So it's mostly used at universities, research centers, places like that, including the place that Groff will work, CERN. In the shadow of the mountains of Geneva on the French border, there's an... CERN is a scientific research center funded by over a dozen different European countries. CERN is the world leader in particle physics. Meaning scientists at CERN spend a lot of time shooting particles around at super fast speeds to see what happens. Which requires a lot of computers. Each experiment would have its own mini computers and most of these things were not connected. That's Ben Siegel. He started working in CERN's data handling division in the 70s. And he said back then, scientists had to transport their data from one computer to another on magnetic tapes. And the magnetic tapes would be brought by bicycle to the computer center. By bicycle. It is the most analog thing I can imagine. I know. Imagine the physicists just biking around Geneva. (laughs) With their little tapes and their little bike baskets. (laughs) So... CERN is starting to get hooked up to various networks so its scientists can transfer data from one computer to another with no bicycles required. Good pitch. Yeah, and Ben Siegel convinces them to connect to this new American network called the Internet. Okay, amazing. So now the information can just travel miraculously beautifully from one computer to another computer. Well, I mean, the information can travel from one computer to another, yes. But when the person at the second computer tries to read it, they might not be able to. Why not? The problem is with the computers themselves. They had different hardware, uh, different software, different operating systems, different manufacturers. In particular, many of the manufacturers didn't want to, to talk to the other manufacturers. Okay, so it would be hard for, say, an IBM computer to talk to a computer that is not made by IBM. Right. All these computers are different. 
Peggy Rimmer, a physicist in CERN's online computing group, used this analogy. You must have had the horror of going on holiday with, say, your hairdryer and getting there and finding the plug doesn't fit into the wall in Portugal. It sounds very annoying. It was. Every time someone at CERN wanted to access another team's data, they had to learn the intricacies of this whole separate computer system, and they had to know how to program. Which not every physicist knows how to do. Right. Isn't it enough to know how to shoot particles at each other? Certainly. Now you got to code too. (laughs) So Rimmer's team at CERN is working on a solution. Some kind of standardization is necessary once you expand your activity to beyond your sort of own comfortable little environment. They're trying to build a metaphorical wall adapter. So all these different computers can share information. And as I understand it, This is the point where one of the people on Rimmer's team sees an opportunity for something much bigger. Right. Tim Berners-Lee. Tim is a fantastic guy. He was completely pleasant and charming and a delight to work with. Berners-Lee was born in 1955, same year as Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. His parents both worked for an early computing company. By five, he was making cardboard computers at home and pretending to feed them paper tape. Classic. That is a web historian and curator at the Computer History Museum, whose name is aptly Mark Weber. Amazing. He is the one who told us at the beginning of the show that if the internet is like a TV set, the web is like the programs that you watch on that TV. The internet is like the physical brain. The web is like the mind. Whew. Hoof is right. And Julia, it is worth pausing for another moment here to really pull apart the internet and the web. Because the distinction is key to this story, but a lot of people today use them to mean basically the same thing. I think a lot of people don't really understand that there's a difference between the internet and the web. So this is a huge source of confusion in the web gallery, actually at the museum. We have, you know, what's the difference between the internet and the web? Weber told us what it boils down to is this. The internet connects computers. The web lets people use those connections. And that is key to the big idea that Tim Berners-Lee is about to have. His team is trying to make it easier for one computer at CERN to share experimental measurements with another. But he's like, let's think way bigger. Let's not just make it easier for scientists to share data. Let's make it easier for everyone to share any information that they want using computers. Let's make it easier for people to use the internet. Right. He wants to build not just a metaphorical wall adapter that will work at CERN, but some kind of bigger system that can make communication easier for computers all over the world. It's like providing this kind of translation toolkit So he starts pitching an idea to his team. We had um, weekly section meetings and occasionally Tim would uh, give a little talk about what his ideas were for this new information management. Information management, that's what he was calling it? That's what he was calling it. But we very rarely understood what he was talking about. First of all, Tim spoke very quickly and 
while he was speaking, he would begin a sentence and then he would get so excited about it all that he would just end it, but not give you the middle bit of the sentence, if you like. So his, his brain was going faster than his jaws could cope. Rimmer told me they'd sometimes have to hold up pieces of paper during his talk saying, slow down. <laughs> so at some point, I said to him, looked him, why didn't you just write it down? So he does write it down in a wandering 14-page document. On the front page, there's a sort of flowchart with all these boxes. Some of them are round, some of them are square, and some of them are coupled by bidirectional arrows, and some are coupled by... So not exactly digestible? No. It was totally impossible to know what on earth were you supposed to do with all of this. But buried in all of this is a genius idea. The information management system will become the World Wide Web. And Tim Berners-Lee says what we should do with it is take it to CERN management and get them to throw a bunch of money at it and, you know, change the world. But if you're someone like Peggy Rimmer, that's a bit of a tough sell. I mean, CERN is supposed to be doing physics research, nothing else. Again, physics research, very good, already a lot. Right. We were supposed to um, say, okay, great, we'll get you all the people and money you need and we'll sell it to the bosses. But, you know, even Mike was perplexed by it. Mike Sendel is Peggy Rimmer's future husband. He's also the guy in charge of the online computing group. He holds the purse strings. And he wants to understand this flowchart. So he reaches out to this man named Robert Caillou. He's a Belgian engineer who's been at CERN since the 70s. Caillou himself has been thinking about the need for a system like this. And when he reads the flowchart, he thinks... Yeah, that's in fact already most of the answer. So uh, then I went to, to find out where Tim's office was and we talked it over and we started doing stuff together. The two of them play around with a few different names for this project. The mine of information, the information mesh. Before settling on World Wide Web. And at this point, Tim Berners-Lee decides we need to go beyond this flowchart explaining the web on paper. People aren't getting it. We need to actually build a prototype. But on the computers they're using at the time, that would take forever. And this isn't even their main job. There was never a real CERN official project on the web, right? But they've heard about this new type of computer called a Next. It's very powerful, great for programming. It was developed by Apple founder Steve Jobs. Ben Siegel, the guy who remembered tapes being carried around on bicycles, he told us they're not exactly allowed to buy this computer. It was like buying dope. We had to go. <laughs> you couldn't buy it officially from CERN, but we knew this Italian colleague who bought some, and we got him to buy Tim's machine for him. With that, Berners-Lee has the processing power to build a prototype of the World Wide Web. Tim Berners-Lee wants the web to be a revolutionary, democratic tool to help everyone use their computers to communicate and easily find information. That is his goal. No more memorizing a million and one systems just to send data between your computer and the computer next door. Getting information should be easy so that anyone can do it. The computers should do the hard work of finding where this thing is getting access rights to it and transmitting it back to my local computer and then uh, displaying that thing in, in a way that I can read. 
So all the process I just described reduced to a click. But reducing it to a click is going to take a lot of work. First of all, Tim Berners-Lee wants you to be able to find any information you want anywhere on the internet. But that's not how the internet works right now. You can't easily hop from one part to another. It all feels very linear. But what Tim Berners-Lee is imagining instead is a web. Picture yourself as the little spider walking around on it. You don't just have to walk up and down in straight lines, of course not. The lines are pointing in every direction and they're all connected. So you, the little spider, can go anywhere on the web that you want. You don't have to take a certain route or go in a certain order. And that is how Tim Berners-Lee wants people to be able to navigate on his web. Just go grab any information you want from anywhere. So first, he needs to come up with a way for you, a user, to tell your computer what information you want to grab. So he creates a very simple concept, an address. Today, we call this a URL. Just like when you have a phone number, that's your address on the phone network. The URL just tells the machine where to find something. It can take you to a specific web page. Sounds totally intuitive today, but it is a huge flash of insight. So now you can tell your computer what information you want using an address, but you've still got a big problem, one that we've talked about before. It's that hairdryer in a foreign country issue. Different types of computers cannot easily communicate. So say that you're on a computer in Building 101 at CERN, but the information that you want lives on another computer in building ABC in Palo Alto, California. Your computer gets the address it needs and goes knocking on the door, but it can't communicate with that other computer. Tim Berners-Lee needs to finally build his adapter so the computers can do all that communicating for you. They say, I want this document. Well, are you authorized? Yes, I am. No, I'm not. What kind of format do you need? What kind of data can you read? What can you not read? So he builds a system. You've seen its name a million times. It's those letters you gloss over every day on the web. H-T-T-P. It stands for Hypertext Transfer Protocol, but don't worry about that. All you need to know is it lets these computers talk to each other in a way that they have never been able to before. Okay. So now you can tell your computer, I want the information at this address, and your computer can go talk to another computer and get that information. Amazing. But your computer still needs to show you what it found, which is harder than it seems because it requires two things. Oh no. First, Berners-Lee needs a language, a way to tell any computer of any kind, anywhere in the world, how to show you information in the form of a web page. That says, here's a title, Here's a paragraph, here's an image, and you're going to put this color there. And when the people scroll, you're going to display the next part. This language is called HTML, and it solves a lot of problems. But Tim Berners-Lee still needs a way for users to actually get on the web. Right, to just access this amazing place that he's building. Right, he needs to build a sort of doorway, a portal to the web, aka a browser. A browser like Google Chrome, Firefox, Safari today. Yes, exactly. The thing that you launch to access the web. And at this point, Berners-Lee has a browser, but it's built specifically for his fancy Next computer. 
In fact, unlike later browsers, it doesn't just let you browse the web, it also lets you actually create web pages. Those next computers are really high tech. But he and Robert Caillou are some of the only people at CERN who have next computers. It's not very impressive when you see something working just on one machine. The web isn't really worldwide if only two people can use it. But worldwide is the whole point. So to expand the project, Berners-Lee needs manpower, which Ben Siegel remembers he isn't getting from CERN. He couldn't really get resources. So I found him a couple of people, uh, students, basically. One of those students, Nicola Pello, writes a simple browser that will work on most of the computers at CERN, but it's clunky, and it's not built for the computers that most people in the world have. their personal computers, PCs. Obviously, if you wanted to build a, a universal system, it had to be running on every kind of computer that the world has. The other young engineer who joins the team at this time is Jean-Francois Groff. I wanted to work with Tim immediately because I thought it's a dream come true. Groff knows how to code, and he's bored with his current placement at CERN. So... I immediately went to see what was cooking in Tim's office. And we happened to be quasi-neighbors in that uh, dilapidated building where the computer scientists were stuffed. At this point, it's becoming clear that CERN is never going to give them the resources that they need. If they want the web to be worldwide, they have to build many browsers for many different types of computers, especially for those personal computers. The most popular thing in the world is the PC. Can we have a student to write a browser for the PC? We give him all the, all the back-end tools. No, we couldn't do that. So Tim Berners-Lee and his team decide it's time to take matters into their own hands. If they can't do this within CERN, well, then they're just going to have to go outside. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Tim Berners-Lee decides that he needs to put out the word about the web so that people can help him build it. Jean-Francois Groff spends months helping him prepare. I remember driving at night from the place I lived, which was just five kilometers away, and waving hello to the guards at CERN who knew me and my car. <laughs> and saying, yeah, it's me, don't worry. I'm, I'm just going to program a bit more. And I would be programming at midnight until the things worked. He's writing a code library. Which is called the World Wide Web Library. It had all the necessary bricks to to build other stuff. 
other stuff like browsers, especially for PCs. The key to making the web available worldwide. So they write the code library, they debug the program that they've already written, aka the web. And by August of 1991, after months of work, everything is ready. Now it was working. It was, in our mind, good enough that we could announce it to a wider audience. Say, hey, here are all the tools. Here's the protocol. Uh, you can get the source code. It's free. Go and build stuff. In early August, they go on this internet news board and put out what's essentially a bat signal for the programming community. Saying, use the web system we built and build more browsers so other people can use it too. Is it like a climactic moment when you put this thing out into the universe? No, it was totally anticlimactic. You use these big words like launch or released, and, and it, it, it's very difficult to point to things. They, they were sort of lab prototypes. It was not like, oh, this is our first server, our first big announcement, and I expect all the press to jump on it. Not at all, nothing of the sort. Uh, it was more of a call for help, in fact. Julia, you were really trying to get them to admit that this moment was a big deal. And it was a big deal. I, I know. will admit it. It was a big deal. They're, they're very modest. It was a big yeah. deal. This is a world-changing project. Yes. And they announced that. And they asked for help from the programming community. And the coders really deliver. That's not often emphasized in the histories of the internet, but it's extremely important. The work of all the people who, who did the plumbing behind the scenes to, to make all this existing data available on the World Wide Web. In this one subculture, people are excited. So excited that they're willing to put in a lot of work to start expanding what the web can do. But many people are like those CERN scientists when they saw that first flowchart. They don't understand the hype. So that December, Robert Caillou and Tim Berners-Lee decide to submit a paper to a tech conference in San Antonio, try to drum up interest in the web. And that paper was actually refused, but we were allowed to make uh, a demonstration. Easier said than done. I had never been to San Antonio. I didn't know where San Antonio was. I didn't know how big it was. I landed at San Antonio got into a taxi to get to the hotel, and I said to the taxi driver, I need to find a university. Is there a university at San Antonio? And the taxi driver said, uh, there are three. Which one do you want? <laughs> uh, if only he could Google it. I know, someday. But right now, he can't even access the web except through a dial-up internet connection, which is why he's asking about universities in the first place. He needs to contact someone at one of the universities in San Antonio to get an account to dial into their internet connection from the Marriott, where the conference is being held. He's had a Next computer shipped to him in Texas. Remember, he's coming from Geneva. <laughs> and on top of that, he's got the literal hairdryer in a foreign country issue. Can't dry his hair? Well, I didn't actually ask him about his hairdryer, but basically <laughs> he just doesn't have a modem with the correct voltage, and it's a whole issue. Uh. I still got the screwdriver that the, the hotel engineering guy gave me to make a special cable. He finally gets the web demo up and running. And? I think half the people just didn't understand what they were seeing. And some people actually said, but so what? 
One conference delegate said, they have chutzpah calling that the World Wide Web. And indeed, the web is the most stupid, banal, simplistic hypertext that you can imagine. And this is why it works. The web's simplicity is in fact its key. It uses hypertext, clickable links, to connect different types of computers. It achieves that dream of sharing and retrieving information in a single click. And maybe most importantly, everyone can use it. And they do. Soon, with the help of those hundreds of volunteer coders, the web is beginning to grow. More and more people are visiting that code library and using it to build stuff. CERN, though, is still not heavily investing in the web. It is busy running experiments on the largest particle collider in the world. But in 1993, another institution does devote resources to the web. A team at the University of Illinois builds a browser called Mosaic. Within 18 months, it has more than a million users. Starting to become worldwide, it's definitely on its way. Robert Metcalf, who's one of the internet's founders, would later say, in the web's first generation, which is Tim Berners-Lee's creation, a few people noticed that it might be better than the alternatives. But in its second generation, with Mosaic, several million then suddenly noticed that the web might be better than sex. Julia, today, the web is certainly worldwide. Sometimes it feels like the web is the world. Yeah, it really happened. They did it. Or at least, they started the ball rolling down the hill. When they started out, this team of coders had an idealistic vision of the web as a democratic tool to connect all of humanity. We were rather young, naive, and optimistic. And we thought that as soon as humanity would would be able to uh, be connected and share more information with each other, there would be less hate and, and less war and more understanding between peoples and kumbaya, right? Of course, it didn't exactly happen this way. And we learned, like all the great scientists learned, that whatever tool you build, it will be used for good and it will be used for evil. One of the things, either Tim said or I said anyway, something we agreed on was that the person who invented paper can't be blamed for what gets written on it. The web has evolved in ways that they never saw coming. And Robert Caillou remembers a small moment, really early on, when he got the first hint of that, when he realized that the web was already out of their hands. Mike Sendel walks into his office one day. Showing me a a plastic bag with a lettuce in it that he had bought at the supermarket. And there was a URL on the printed on the bag. He said, now now it's gone out of hand. You know, it's everywhere (laughs) Once it's on the lettuce, there's no going back. (laughs) Yeah, once it's on the bag of the lettuce, that's it. Uh, End of story, (laughs) you know. It was out there now. And people were going to make it their own. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For other moments throughout history that are worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek@history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. Very special thanks today to our guests, Robert Caillou, Jean-Francois Groff, Peggy Rimmer, Ben Siegel, and Mark Weber, web historian and curator at the Computer History Museum. 
To learn more about the Webb story, visit the Internet History Program page on the museum's website, computerhistory.org slash nethistory. This episode was reported and produced by Julia Press. It was story edited by Jim O'Grady and Jimmy Gutierrez and sound designed by Brian Flood. History This Week is also produced by Morgan Givens and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.